Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Fellow saints of God, A couple weeks ago in our Sunday morning Bible class on Christian worship, we were talking about the the church year. And by church year, I don't mean just the past year, but I mean the, the calendar that we and most Christians follow to guide our worship. And one of the many interesting things that we discussed was how different our celebration of important festivals is from the secular world. For example, when it comes to holidays in the secular world, you celebrate those holidays in the days and weeks leading up to it. For example, you can have a Christmas party at school or at your job days, weeks before December 25th. But once December 25th comes and goes, well, so does the holiday. Soon after the the tree comes down for Christmas, the Easter baskets get put away, and you are on to the next one. But that isn't the way it works in the church year, in our calendar. Our celebration waits until the day, until the festival, and then it just keeps going. And there is no bigger celebration, and... Subsequently, there is no longer church season in the festival half of the church year than the one we're in right now, Easter. Advent is four weeks, Christmas is 12 days. Epiphany varies depending on when Lent begins, but it's usually somewhere between four and six weeks, just like Lent, which is six weeks. But Easter gets seven weeks. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, and we talked about in that class some of, some of what those reasons were. But here's a new one that came to me as I was looking at the third week of Easter readings. We need time to digest and consider these post-resurrection appearances Jesus makes to people. There's so much there, and there's a number of them. On Easter, Jesus appeared to Mary in the garden. Last week, we heard about Jesus appearing to his disciples on that first Easter evening and then coming back the following Sunday so that he could do it all over again for Thomas. Today in our Gospel reading in John chapter 21, we heard Jesus yet again appear to his disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee where he meets with them and eats with them and gives them a miraculous catch of fish and absolves Peter, not once, not twice, but three times. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus even once appeared to over 500 people. You see, this wasn't just a rumor. It wasn't just that a couple people really wanted to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but no one actually saw him alive. No, dozens, hundreds of people saw Jesus alive on multiple occasions, in different places, over an extended period of time. And today, in Acts chapter 9, we heard of one more. 
But this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus is unlike any other. You think about all of those examples that I just gave of Jesus appearing to his disciples, to the women, and all of them sound like, well, they sound like Jesus acting like and saying things that we would expect Jesus to say and do. He's breathing out his Holy Spirit on people. He's absolving them, forgiving their sins. He's sitting down and having a meal with them. This is, this is what we expect Jesus to be like. He opens up his hands and, and pulls open his robe and he allows his disciples to examine and even to touch his crucifixion wounds to give them confidence. Every other time Jesus shows up, he acts just the way that we would expect Jesus to act. But I don't know if that's the case here in Acts chapter 9. On that road to Damascus, Jesus is not breathing out His Spirit or telling people that they have peace or enjoying a meal with them. No, here, Jesus shows up with what amounts to be a lightning bolt. This flash of light that comes from the heavens. And when Jesus starts talking... He doesn't talk about peace. No, Jesus gets about as emotionally distraught as you have ever heard him be. You can hear the sadness just falling out of his mouth as he looks at this man and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't ask Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you taking your rage out on Christians? He says, why do you persecute me? It, it was almost like every time Saul had grabbed a woman by her hair and pulled her, that Jesus felt that tug. Or every time that Saul had kicked in a door and dragged a father away from his screaming child, it was really Jesus who was crying out, No! Not my daddy. Or when Saul was standing there giving his approval, as Stephen was being stoned to death, Jesus felt every crushing blow. Jesus so loves the people of his church. He so intimately connects with them and identifies with them that any attack they suffer, Jesus takes it personally. And now, Jesus had shown up to charge Saul with his crimes. And Saul was charged. You just have to watch Jesus in action to get that. There's some beautiful irony here. Did, did you catch this? Think about it. Everything that Saul intended to do with those Christians, once he got to Damascus, is almost exactly what happened to Paul himself. Saul wanted Christians down on the ground begging for their lives. And yet when that flash of light came from the heavens, that's exactly where Paul found himself. 
Saul wanted Christians in prison, which is exactly uh, what I imagine it must feel like to go from being able to see to being completely in the dark, to be made blind. Paul wanted to watch as Christians were bound hand and foot and led into prison. But when Saul, due to his blindness, couldn't see where he was going, he was the one who was led by the hand into Damascus. Jesus shows up to Saul in an angry lightning bolt, charges him with crimes, knocks him to the ground, blinds him, and forces him to be led like a humble prisoner to the very city that Saul had intended to persecute. And while it's dripping with beautiful irony, this is not your typical comforting, uplifting, post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. No, this is how Jesus appears to the man who was breathing out murderous threats against his disciples. Saul wanted every last Christian dead. That is, until a Christ he thought was dead showed up and totally ruined him. And that's it. The resurrected Jesus came, convicted Saul of his heinous crimes, blinded him, and then left him helpless. And I point out all of this because I want you to understand how the post-resurrection Jesus operates. No, I don't mean that post-resurrection Jesus likes to ruin people. He doesn't. He never does. Ever. Jesus always wants to heal and restore and forgive. Always. Even for this awful, murderous assassin who will eventually become an overwhelmingly powerful apostle. This Jesus hater who becomes the most prolific and fearless minister of the gospel. This fear-inducing terror of a man will become a mighty apostle. But Jesus doesn't do it. Not here and not now at least. Jesus ruined Saul, but he does not immediately heal him. But did you catch how Jesus eventually does? Though through the most unlikely of ways. You know how Jesus very shockingly and, stri- and strikingly heals the ruin he brought to Saul? He does it by sending Saul a preacher. A preacher. And consider this do you know where that preacher was from? More irony. From Damascus. Talk about irony. A preacher, Paul or Saul, was headed to capture and probably kill a preacher that Paul had been hunting and hoping to squelch out of existence was sent by the Lord Jesus to heal and forgive him. Can you even begin to contemplate the grace that is in that? Jesus used the very ministry that Paul was trying to exterminate 
but Jesus used it to bring him life. And so, some seemingly random guy, a preacher by the name of Ananias, shows up and says to Paul, Brother! Brother Saul, the Lord, what Lord? Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Jesus who had physically shown up and left Paul on the ground, blind and charged with horrible crimes, did heal him. He always does. It's just that he didn't do it personally or physically in that moment. No, the post-resurrection Jesus heals and fills people with the Holy Spirit by sending them a preacher. And Ananias understood that. Saul said to, or Ananias said to Saul, Jesus has sent me. And Ananias even knew why that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends preachers who are just regular people. Think about it. Jesus cares so deeply about people that he sends to them people. And these preachers, they're all nobodies. Who was Ananias? You'd never heard of him before this, and you don't hear about him after. This is the only event in Scripture where we hear of this Ananias. The guy who first absolved and baptized the greatest missionary the Christian church has ever seen comes and goes in the blink of an eye. Because preachers are nobodies. But Jesus takes this ministry of these nobodies and he makes it truly and divinely matter. That's exactly what Ananias said to Paul in that very moment. Jesus has sent me to you so that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is shocking to consider. That some nobody can go to another nobody with Jesus' words and Jesus' promises and with Jesus' baptism and fill that nobody with the Holy Spirit. That some nobody can come in and do for Paul exactly what you and I expected only Jesus could do and only in that moment on that road to Damascus. Now Jesus leaves Saul in ruins so that he could send a nobody preacher, so that that nobody preacher could have the joy and the peace and the excitement and the hope and the love of being able to give someone Jesus. If that is not one big massive commendation of Christian ministry straight from Jesus, then I don't know what is. God wants everyone to have someone in their life they can call pastor. 
And I am not saying this for job security. It does not have to be me. But everyone, you, need someone you can call pastor. Even the greatest Christian apostle who ever lived had a pastor. But here's the challenge. Once you have one, sin will always try and distort his ministry to you. And that tends to happen in one of two ways. The first way is that you will think so highly of your pastor that you will miss seeing Jesus. Or you will think so lowly of him that you will miss seeing Jesus. And Paul here is the perfect example of how we avoid both of those extremes. After Ananias had healed and forgiven Paul in Jesus' name, Paul didn't say, thank you, thank you, Ananias, you are my Savior. Without you, I would have no life. Nor does he say, Ananias, seriously, come on. I mean... It's not like you can do the things that you're saying. You can't distribute the Holy Spirit. Who do you think you are, Jesus? No, there wasn't a denial that, that Jesus had sent Ananias, nor was there a destructive idolizing of him either. There was only Jesus. And frankly, that's how it should be with every pastor. There's only Jesus. It's Jesus who gifts you, your pastor, by his grace. And it's Jesus who went ahead and somehow fit that pastor right into your life. And so do you know what you do now with a pastor? Well, for starters, you need to hear Jesus forgive you through him. For the times that you have missed seeing Jesus in him and then listen to that forgiveness again with fresh ears like you have never heard it before so that when he says, I forgive you, you know that that means Jesus forgives you. Then don't think so lowly of him that you don't seek his counsel or bother listening to his sermons or coming to his Bible classes. At the same time, don't think so highly of him that he shatters your world when he reminds you that he is just a nobody. A sinner just like you. The Spirit makes it clear that he calls pastors who only can give you grace out of the grace that has first been given to them. That's how it's always worked. Jesus called a nobody preacher named Ananias to be a preacher for Paul. And then he called Paul, that assassin, to be a pastor and preacher to thousands in the ancient world. He called that denier Peter, and the doubter Thomas, and that quitter Jonah, and the weakling Jeremiah, and those two brothers James and John who needed anger management therapy, and the professional thief named Matthew, all sinners, all nobodies but all men who were given grace on top of grace. Grace for themselves and then grace to share. And do you see where that leaves us? Where Jesus and his grace and a world full of nobody pastors who are called to give you that grace 
God's rich love and never-ending forgiveness for you. Jesus has some of you this morning who are looking for a church when what you really should be looking for is a preacher, a pastor. And the Lord Jesus has led you here this morning in the hopes of finding a pastor. And now you know why. Others of you, I hope you now know a little more why you have a pastor. Still others of you, this is maybe the first time in a long time that you felt like you've had one. Whatever the case may be, that's what the post-resurrection Jesus is up to. He's hiding behind pastors, working through nobodies, pouring out His Spirit and making His grace known to the world. And do you know why I point all of this out to you? Running the high risk of sounding like this whole sermon is completely self-serving? Because I want you to see Jesus in your life as plainly as the pastor who's standing in front of you. See Jesus just as plainly as you see him hiding in water and underneath bread and wine. Because when you see Jesus in those lowly places and lowly people, and you begin to understand what he accomplishes through those lowly things and those lowly people, friends, you're going to be hard-pressed to find anything else in your life that is more powerful or beautiful or comforting. And I want you to see that for yourself today. I want you to see it just like Paul saw it in Ananias. You know, I may be rapidly approaching my 40s, but I can still hold the hand of an 80-year-old widow who's just lost her husband and speak to her words that matter. I may not be the most polished speaker, but I can say with the best of them to a guilty conscience burdened with sin and terrified of death, I forgive you. Which means Jesus forgives you. I may only be a guy for whom Jesus has died too. But because I know he did, I can preach a sermon or offer a word of comfort that sets people free forever. I may need even more grace from Jesus than you do, but I can commune tired souls, baptize sinners, and teach the truth that will carry you all the way from this life into the next. And here's why I can do all of that. Because it's not me. It's all Jesus. It's only Jesus. Only Jesus could take a nobody like Ananias and light the world's greatest missionary on fire for the gospel. Only Jesus could use a Peter, a Thomas, and a Jonah, a Jeremiah, or Matthew, and in a far lesser way, me. You know, like every profession, I think I've matured a little bit over the 13 years of my pastoral ministry. But the ways I see my maturity have been in very weird and strange ways. And here's one example that came to mind this week. This has happened with some of you, uh, especially with your children. 
uh, little children will come up to me and they will call me Jesus. Or parents will tell me that when they get into the car on Sunday morning, their kids hop in and they say, are we going to see Jesus? And earlier on in my ministry, I would look at them and with the biggest smile on my face and, and being as flattered as I possibly could be, I would say, no, I'm not Jesus. But here's how I've matured. I don't correct that anymore. Because I'm not so sure there's anything to correct. Because I think those little kids see the very thing that Jesus wants us all to see. That this is the preacher that Jesus has sent to me. They see that this is how the resurrected Lord so powerfully works behind a plan like this. He sends out one sinner. And he sends that sinner to another sinner. So that grace can go from one to the next. And that it, we all could know that it was only because of Jesus. Always, always because of Jesus. In his name. Amen.